Let's keep going in our series in John. If you have a Bible, um, grab those, and we are going to continue in John chapter 5 this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm one of the pastors here at Huntington Community Church, and I love um, just getting to worship um, God with you all through the scriptures. So I'm really, really excited about today's passage. Um, we are going to be in, we're going to start in verse 30 this morning. Um, but as you're turning there, hopefully it's on the screen too, I want to tell you a title, kind of where we're, where we're heading um, with this sermon. The title is this, Jesus is telling the truth and we are witnesses. So Jesus is telling the truth and we are witnesses. And this really is what it all comes down to for us as followers of Christ, as his church. Is Jesus telling the truth about who he is, see God, and what he has done, dying and rising again? Part of what it means to be a follower of Christ is to be a witness to that truth. We are witnesses to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. 1 Corinthians 15, you don't have to turn there, I want to show you this verse. This is verse 17 through 19. This is the passage where Paul is proving the resurrection. He's saying people saw him, this is why it matters. And there's these three verses right in the midst of his giant gospel rant that I think is really interesting, especially as it pertains to whether or not Jesus is telling the truth and what that means for us. Verse 17 says this, And if Christ has not been raised... So if it's not true, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Also, look, 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So this is not true, what we're claiming, what we sing about, what we say we orient our whole lives around. If it's not true that Jesus really did die, really did rise again, then our faith is futile, we're still in our sins, And even those who have died in Christ have truly just perished. 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This deeply matters. Um, I'm going to paraphrase a really bad quote that I've heard before. Um, I can't tell you that I've heard someone say this specifically, but this sentiment I have seen in a variety of different ways Something like this, you should try Christianity even if you're not sure that it's true. At the end of your life, if you find out that it's a lie, then you will still be happy that you had a good life. Maybe you've heard something like that, you've seen it on social media, whatever. Paul would have yelled at this person. (laughs) Verse 19, if we have, in Christ, we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. We are truth people. We want to live in ultimate reality. As Christians, we aren't hedging our bets on Jesus being who he says he is. We are banking our lives on this. We're not just thinking, you know, out of all the choices, this one's the best. And even if it's wrong, we had a pretty good moral life. It's not faith. It's banking everything on him. So, in this passage in John, we're going to see a continuation of this teaching, what I'm hoping that God does through this is, as we watch Jesus do this, that he would expand the idea of truth in his teaching, particularly what it means for us as his followers and his 
witnesses. And so, this is John 5, 30 through 47. I'm going to read all of it. So you can read along with me silently or in your Bibles or it's only on the screen. So let's, let's start in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I, sorry, lost my place. There we go. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would use these words to change us. God, the Christians in the room, the ones who love and follow Jesus, we want to bring more glory to you. We want to be witnesses to the truth that is found in you alone. And so God, make the gospel clear. Make these concepts and these principles that we learn about Jesus true in our hearts. Help us to live accordingly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, verse 30. Something to note, maybe if you don't have an ESV Bible, maybe you notice that some versions in the Bible actually have verse 30 um, before that next uh, section head, if you see that. If you have an ESV Bible, it says, witnesses to Jesus, and then verse 30. Something that's just important to know in your Bible reading is those subheadings are not inspired. Um, So it's not like we have to You know, it's like, oh man, we really messed this up. Like, we should have had this last verse and the one before. Um, So just if you're confused about that, that's that's what's going on there. The ESV editors that be uh, decided that's how they wanted to organize it. But either way, I actually kind of like some of the other versions' organization better. Um, We are seeing Jesus continue his teaching on ultimate reality. So let's look at verse 30 again. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So it's an interesting phrase that we need to wrestle with. It says, Jesus is literally saying, I can do nothing on my own. This is another statement of something we mentioned last week that shows us mutual glorification. The persons of the Trinity. It is a glory of God that reminds us over and over again that our God is one in three persons. 
And when we see Jesus teaching on this, we are seeing how the triune God works in the world. Jesus, God the Son, only operates in line with the Father. Now, if you're like me, you ask questions like, why does that matter? <laughs> like, I want to know. That is a, it's a fun theological tidbit, but if it's in the Bible, it means it matters for ultimate reality, and I want to know how to live in light of that. So here's some application anchoring here for us. So I don't want you to hear that and just think, mutual glorification, that's a fun word. I want this to matter for the way you wake up tomorrow morning, the way that you deal with your sin, the way you're sustained in suffering. All of this matters because it's true. So remember, when you learn this word, it's probably not a new word for most of you. We talked about it last week, the idea of the hypostatic union. Remember that God the Son, second person of the Trinity, took on a human nature. One theology professor says it this way, says the humanity of Christ refers to the reality that in his incarnation, the Son of God assumed a complete human nature with all its limitations, this is huge, but without any way surrendering his divinity so that he might serve as humanity's representative, substitute, and example. I want to repeat that because I think it's really important as we consider how to live out the truths found in the hypostatic union. He did this so that he might serve as humanity's representative, his substitute, our substitute, and our example. So Jesus Christ is God. He took on human nature to live a life of perfect obedience, died the sacrificial death for the salvation of those who come to him by faith. Representative, the new Adam, the new humanity is here, substitute, sacrifice, dying in our place. But in doing that, he also shows us our example of what it means to be truly and fully human. See that? It's not just representative. It's not just substitute. It's also example. If you want to know what it's like to be human, we watch God the Son in flesh. This is glorious because what this means for us is that it, when Jesus is here on earth in the flesh, he's not just showing us what God is like, though he is doing that. And he's not just dying for us, which he does. He also lets us in on how our lives fall short because we get to see the standard of what humanity is supposed to be like. This is beautiful. And you go wrong here when you raise one, when you raise example over substitute, okay? Jesus came to die in our place and rise again to restore us to the Father, but in so doing shows us what it looks like to be truly human. And so, Jesus does nothing of his own accord, and neither can we. This is important for you to apply this. When Jesus perfect human says, he can do nothing of his own accord. You need to understand, neither can you. And in John 15, he's going to teach this to us later. That's the abide in me passage. Can't wait for that one. But he makes the point over and over again, you can do nothing apart from God. And he keeps going. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus judges truth, he judges life and death, and he is the ultimate standard of reality. And this judgment is always just. It is always good and always in line with the will of God. And then we see why, right, in the grammar here. Why is it always just? Because God the Son doesn't seek his own will, but the will of him who he was sent by. Now, quick application here. This is how we should live as well. 
We only seek the will of the one who sent us. And as followers of Jesus, as his witnesses, we are sent. So not our will, but God's. The God-man, Jesus, as our example, shows us how to use our wills. As a human, you have an ability to choose. And the way we should live as humans is always choosing God's will over our own. In a very real sense, we have been set free from our enslaved will to sin to actually having a free will that is allowed and able to choose God's will. Now, I'm going to take a pause here because we have to do some more systematic theology work again. So, Tony, put that word up there. It's a very important word for you that you didn't know, maybe before this, that you believe. This is, and I'm going to get it wrong. I've been practicing this all morning to make sure I say this right. But diothelitism, Joseph, is that right? Okay, Joseph looked it up for me, sent me a little uh, screenshot uh, video recording of Google saying that for me. So this is diothelitism, all right? It's a very important word for us as Christians, and I got help from several places here, um, but I want to just beg you right now, do not tune this out. This is important and glorious for you to see, especially in light of us wanting to be people who fuel our minds and hearts with truth as Jesus being our representative, our substitute, and our example. So, diothelitism. This is a word that means the two wills of Christ. The two wills of Christ. Now, bear with me as I flesh this out of why this is important. The first will that Jesus Christ has not the first, but one of them, is the eternal divine will that he has as God. Okay, the eternal divine will that he has as God. Also, taking on flesh, becoming human, he has a human will that he took on because he took on a full human nature. And human nature includes having a will. Now, without sin, of course, we know that he was sinless, but diophilitism is what, literally in the 6th and 7th century, people were fighting over this to make sure we understood this passed down to us. It's so important. Jesus Christ is the God-man with two wills. Why? Because he has two natures. Now, verse 30 shows us this going on right in front of us. Did you catch it? I can do nothing of my own. As I, ju- as I hear, I judge, and in my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this becomes most prominent, if you're familiar with gospel writings, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You guys remember this, right? It's the moment of anguish for Jesus. He says, what? Not my will, but yours. This is so important. Now, make sure you have good categories. What I'm not saying is these wills are opposed, never opposed. He never sinned. But they are two. One theologian says it this way. As God, God wills by his divine will, and as man obeys the divine will, by his human will. Now, I know that seems a little dense, but this is so important, and here's why. This matters because without Jesus having a human will, we don't have a sinless representative, a sinless substitute, and a sinless example. People literally fought for this because if Jesus didn't have a sinless human will that was able to choose God's will, he's not actually human. And if he didn't really become human, He's not our representative. He's not our substitute, and our faith is in vain. This is opposed to what other theologians, wrong theologians, called monothelitism, saying that God the Son just was animated by one eternal God will, thus making him not truly human. P. 
People fought for this. Jesus is showing us in this verse that God the Son incarnate is perfect. He's a sinless human, and he is God. Okay, now we start to look at Jesus' work on validating his claims as true. Verse 31. Let's keep going. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus is saying that it isn't true if he's the only one who bears witness. A witness is someone who gives testimony about what he or she has personally seen or experienced. And this makes all the difference, right? We've already established. We are banking our lives on this man telling the truth. And as I'm studying this, I'm still wondering, why would he say that it isn't true if it's just him? It's kind of a a funny thing to say to me. What he was probably referring to is an Old Testament reality. You see this a few times in the Law of Moses, but I'll show you one example. Deuteronomy 17.6 in the Law of Moses says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So it's this idea of multiple witnesses corroborating to say, yes, this testimony is in fact true. So this idea would have obviously resonated with his Old Testament savvy audience. Jesus is setting up how he's going to show other witnesses that prove over and over again that he is truth. This is so important. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, study notes say that they probably thought he was talking about John the Baptist, but he is referring to a much better witness than that, as we'll see in a few verses. He's talking about his father, God. But in verses 33 through 35, he still wants them to see that the lesser witness of John the Baptist and how that message is still validated and validates God's message. So look at 33. Switch gears to John the Baptist. He's going to go back to his father. But in 33, he says this. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. I love John the Baptist. I think he is one of the most fascinating characters in the whole Bible. Um, So how did John the Baptist bear witness? What was he doing? If you remember, he lived like a prophet. He was a wilderness preacher, saying really hard things, so much so that eventually it gets his head removed from his body. He's preaching so hard. Eating bugs, honey, calling people to repent baptizing people. And if you remember a few weeks ago, we saw that he was gaining quite a following, right? His ministry was gaining a crowd. He was, his witnessing was gaining a crowd. But then when Jesus shows up, we see his true character. We see John the Baptist was actually not doing ministry for himself. He was doing, doing ministry as a witness to the one who is his life. He was pointing people to Jesus. Do you remember what he said when, G, when he saw Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sins of the world. That's him. He's the one. He's the point of my life. I am just a witness testifying to the truth of who that man is. And if you remember, his followers are confused, wondering what's going on. I love John 3.30. He says, well, he must increase, but I must decrease. And this is a good example for us, too, in our witnessing. We want people to see our personal ministries, our church ministry, what goes on in the life of HCC. We want them to see that and behold Jesus. We don't want people to leave here impressed with us. We want people to leave here seeing a clear picture of who Jesus is. More than that, we want people to forget us and remember Jesus. Part of what it means to be a faithful witness is pointing people always away from you and decreasing so that people might see more of Christ. That's what John the Baptist did. 34. 
Jesus continues, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things, why? So that you may be saved. It seems like Jesus' main concern was not that John the Baptist was correct, but that people understand that truth is truth. Jesus doesn't need man's testimony. He is Lord no matter how many people reject him. The majority opinion doesn't matter when it comes to actual truth found in Christ. It's beautiful. It doesn't matter. What, what is true is true is true, whether or not people agree or see it. And clearly, this truth matters for salvation. That's what he's saying. Not the testimony that I receive is from man, meaning I've got a bigger testimony than John the Baptist, but I'm saying these things so that you might be saved because truth matters for our salvation. And then, in 35, he shows us a glimpse of what John the Baptist was like as a witness. And I think it's incredible, and I'll be honest, it's something that I've been praying for myself and also for us as a church in this city. Look at how he describes John the Baptist in verse 35. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. It was actually amazing how many older saints found such inspiration in the description of burning and shining lamp. Um, the consensus seemed to be that when God says burning here, when Jesus calls him burning, this means a holy zeal for loving God. John the Baptist was burning with passion to see God glorified and loving Jesus. And shining, meaning showing a clear showing of the truth. It wasn't zeal without knowledge. It wasn't just passion. It was, it was not only burning, but it was also shining, saying this is true. Don't you love this? Like, I want my life to burn and shine for the kingdom. I want to be that kind of lamp. Don't you want that to be said of us in the city? HCC, they're not just all shine, no burn. They're not just, we got everything right, but there's no love for people. And we're not just all burn, no shine, where it's like, man, they're passionate, but we have no idea what they believe. We want both. And I want you to want that in your own personal worship in the mornings. Come to the scriptures to burn and to shine. I want to be that kind of lamp, a lamp lit up with the light in Christ that burns for him and shines for him. Now, we often see the theme of fire in the Bible showing us the pure holiness of God, often connected to old covenant worship found in the law of Moses, and we see the theme of a shining light showing our outward posture on mission. You've seen that, shine, you know, don't cover the lamp. We want to shine. We want our lights to shine before others. You've seen this. So when this is not just a random thing that Jesus throws on. This is deeply embedded in the witness of what God's people are to be like. He's just saying John the Baptist was good at it. He was a burning and shining lamp. I want to show you this from one random verse in the book of Leviticus. I don't know if we're actually allowed to have life verses in the Bible, like, uh, I don't know if y'all ever had that, like, this is my life verse, it seems a little weird to me, because I'm like, all of them should probably be our life verses, but if we're allowed to, and your conscience will allow me, this is one that I have loved, found in Leviticus. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually, it shall not go out. Now, this is referring to the priestly work in the offering of the burnt offering, saying, keep worshiping God, priests. Don't let this fire go out. But I love the new covenant application of wanting our fire to never go out on the altar of our lives as the living sacrifice. It's beautiful. You know that, right? The old covenant is gone, but the sacrifice and temple is still around. It's just you now. 
Our lives are living sacrifices. We are the temple of God, and I am telling you, we should not let our fire go out. We want to burn with a holy love for God. Jesus continues this. If you remember in Luke 24, after the resurrection, we see Jesus teaching some disciples about how the whole Bible points to him. You know what the word says their hearts do when they see it? Burns. (laughs) They see the Bible pointing to Jesus and their hearts burn, and that is what we want. We don't want to just rejoice for a little while like the Pharisees did. And I know maybe some of you limped in here with that. You're like, I'm not burning and I'm not shining. I hope I'm a lamp. You need to understand, by the word, by his grace and the power of the spirit, he can light you up. You can. You're not too far gone. We want our lamps to never go out as they burn and shine for the kingdom, and that's the type of witnesses that we want to be. We want this place and this neighborhood, kids camp, all the ministries around our tables, community groups this summer, whatever it is, we want people to see that. We want to see a burning love for God and a clear shining of who he is to the world. Don't you love it? That's not even the best testimony. Verse 36, Jesus says, got more. 36, look at this. But the testimony that I have is greater than the burning and shining lamp of John. I added that part. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. We see something else, rather someone else, witnessing that Jesus is who he says he is. He says that literally the works that he is doing, the miracles and signs that we get to watch him do in the book of John is showing the world that he is God. And this makes sense, right? A lot of the things that he does, it makes sense that only God would be able to do this. But in a very real sense, when we're watching these miracle stories and you're reading in your Bibles in the morning about who Jesus is, part of what we are doing is seeing these miracle stories and reminding ourselves that Jesus really is God. It's not primarily just for a personal ministry application. It is to overwhelm your heart and your mind saying, whoa, Jesus is who he says he is, and this changes everything for the way that I parent, the way that I work, the way that I live. Jesus is not a concept. This is pointing to ultimate reality. These works show us the heart of God. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. God the Father bears witness that Jesus of Nazareth is who he says he is, not only by giving him these works to accomplish, but by the word. We're going to see that next couple verses. But first, please, please notice how Jesus continues to convict these religious people. Don't forget the audience here. These are Jewish people who thought they had God boxed in, right? Like, they know, they actually know God, and here comes Jesus saying, well, you don't have his word abiding in you. They aren't able to see God the Son or hear him with faith because the word is not abiding in them, and they will not believe Jesus. He's reminding them, you've actually never seen God the Father and never actually heard his voice, And you can't see him because you're missing God right in front of you. We want to be people who have the word in us. Don't you see that? This is a rebuke. You don't have the word abiding in you if you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And even though we don't see him, we don't see God right now, we can love him and believe him because of what Jesus did 
for us. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, gets at this idea. I love these verses, talking about the same reality. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, true, we haven't, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is ours as true witnesses of Jesus. Verse 39 and 40, we get more rebuke and more on the word being another witness of who Jesus is. Look at 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now notice that Jesus grants that they do diligently study the word. And in their case, this would be the Old Testament scrolls, but they've made a grave mistake. They think that they have eternal life in the scriptures, but they are missing the point. The scriptures are from God to bear witness that Jesus is who he says he is. The word is meant to show us that Jesus really lived, he really died, and he really rose again. Even in the Old Testament, I'm pegging us as a church family. Please don't let, in your own life, in your friend circles, around your tables, whatever, don't let us become the type of people who refuse to find life when we read the scriptures. This is why we must burn and shine. We can't let our spiritual disciplines become dutiful religious checkboxes. We must truly love and worship and serve Jesus. We read the Bible to hear from Jesus so that we might love him more. And this is more than helping you alleviate guilt so that when you leave your personal devotions, you didn't feel anything. You know, we're not working just so we can feel something every morning. This is bigger than that. It has something to do with your soul. Do you realize this is why supposed Christians can do evil and cover it up in the name of being religious? When you go to the Bible for proof texting your point or promoting your personal brand, or gathering verses that prop yourself up rather than loving Jesus and coming to meet with Jesus, you are on your way to becoming a Pharisee. And Pharisees are brutal to the people that the kingdom of God actually belongs to. We don't come to the scriptures to be, man, this helps me be more religious. This helps me ignore my sin so that others might see me and look how much Bible I've read. It's nonsense. We come to the Bible humbly, begging God to see his glory and our sinfulness so that we might repent and believe and enjoy Jesus. And this is the type of witnesses that we need to be. Doctrine is good. I've heard it said before. I like this. Doctrine is good because we can't truly worship what we do not know. We want to burn and shine. But doctrine should be the kindling on the love fire that is in your personal worship in the scriptures by the power of the Spirit. And because of this reality, we should be searching the scriptures with more vigor than a Pharisee ever could because they bear witness to the one who is our life. The same passage I mentioned earlier that talked about the disciples who had hearts burning because of Jesus' teaching. I'm going to remind you, you know why they were burning? Because Jesus showed them how all of the Bible pointed to the gospel, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we want to burn like that. That's where our power is. Witnesses who burn like that cannot be stopped when we're actually convinced deep in our hearts and minds that Jesus is who he says he is. And if we're honest, we're so dull. We need to go back to the word every single day to get relit 
to reburn over and over again. Jesus keeps piling it on here. Look at verse 41. I do not receive glory from people. From the cradle to the cross, Jesus was obsessed with God's approval, not man's. We need that, don't we? Please hear this. Because Jesus let us know that he doesn't receive glory from people during his time on earth, he is showing us that the approval of others is not a necessary part of being human. He's the perfect human, and he did not receive glory from people. Yet so many of us live as if this is the point of our existence, as if we are incomplete without the glory that comes from people. And if we are going to be true burning and shining witnesses, we should be the type of witnesses that only care about the approval of God. We want the approval that comes from God alone. Romans 2, 6 through 8, Paul gets at this idea. Talking about Jesus here, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Look at verse 8. This is us so often. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Seek glory and honor in Christ. Don't be self-seeking. This is the opposite of obeying the truth. And some of us Christians in this room, of course the wrath and fury has been poured out on Jesus for us. It's not for us. But some of us need to leave here with repentance of this dangerous idol. Longing for the approval of others over God can cause spiritual chaos in your life. More than that, it is sin. There is so much life and rest to be found in wanting the approval of God over people. We can live. We've been set free to live to please God, not ourselves or others. Verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus knows what is in them, just like he knows what is in us. 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. What do we learn here? Someone's rejection of Jesus shows that they are not true worshipers of God, but only of themselves. And then Jesus, knowing what is in all of us, asks this audience, the Jews, the Pharisees, who was there, asks a devastating question that it should expose all of us this morning. Look at 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Believing in Jesus is wanting God's approval because of the work of Jesus dying and rising again on your behalf. Wanting the glory that comes from people actually keeps people from the faith. Why? Because sinful people recoil at the idea of not being able to be good enough. And maybe this is keeping those of us who do follow Jesus in here from growing in the grace of God right now. Are you only spiritual on Sunday mornings when others can approve of you? What is your prayer closet like? Are you personally worshiping? It's confession here. I went through a reckoning in my own personal life maybe a couple years ago. It was right around the beginning of, yeah, 2020. I realized that I was reading the Bible and praying to become a better ministry person and to be someone who was able to say that I did those things. Some of my motivation became, I'm going to call people to do this, and that means I've got to so that I can be the person they look up to, rather than loving Jesus. My pursuit of Jesus became a pursuit of a spiritual resume. This takes a lot of different forms, but really, it's just wanting to do the work that makes me be able to talk about all the work that I'm doing as a Christian, rather than just loving Jesus. I don't know if that's you, but I want to invite you out of that today. 
because of the cross and resurrection, you can seek the glory that comes from God. You can fear God and not man. I heard it said in a book I was reading last week that the Christian life is a calling, not a performance. It's beautiful if it will sit, freeze you in grace and in joy if we can get there. Look at 45. Jesus just gets more offensive to them. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Remember, Jesus doesn't need to do this because they're already accused in themselves by their own conscience and the reality of being under the judgment of God. And then he drops the hammer, the Old Testament hammer on these guys. Remember, this audience would have prided themselves on being part of the spiritual heritage of Moses. The Old Testament literally was their life. These are the spiritual superheroes. They thought themselves were spiritual superheroes. And look who Jesus says accuses them of actually not knowing God. (laughs) There is one who accuses you. Imagine the tension in the room. It wasn't a room, I guess, outside. Moses, (laughs) on whom you have set your hope. They have set their hope on mastering the law and obeying it to salvation have completely missed the point. 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. They don't really believe the words of Moses because they have rejected the God of Moses who was standing right in front of them. So important for us to see one thing, that Jesus connects the believing of the reality of who he is with seeing it in the word. So important. Some attacks have come at this. There's been popular pastors who have said, we need to unhitch from the Old Testament so that people might want to come to our church or whatever. Or saying that you don't really need the Bible because you're just going to love Jesus. Listen, this is nonsense. Jesus didn't think so. Paul didn't think so. In 1 Corinthians 15, that verse we referenced in the introduction, or that chapter, he literally, when he's explaining the simple gospel, a refrain keeps coming up. And that is, according to the scriptures. The incarnate word is testifying to the written word. And the written word shows us that Jesus, the incarnate word, is true. This is glorious. And now, I've heard it said before that the Bible is not part of the Trinity, all right? It's not the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. That is true. We don't worship our Bibles. But the witness of the Scripture is how we know God. Why? Because they write of Jesus. So in Genesis, Jesus was the snake crusher promised. In Genesis 3, the ark itself points to being saved from God's wrath in Jesus Jesus was the true and better nation blesser of Abraham, the true and better Joseph. You ever thought about the story of Joseph, how it points to Jesus? Think about it. Sold by his brothers, left for dead, raised up to the right hand of Pharaoh to grant forgiveness to the very ones who put him in that place. Sounds familiar. Exodus, the true and better Moses, leading a salvation from slavery, but slavery from sin. Not only that, the true and better Passover lamb whose blood covers us so that whenever the wrath of God comes at the end of the age, it passes over us because the lamb was slain. In Leviticus, the true and better sacrifice on the true day of atonement. In Numbers, he's with them in the wilderness, the pillar of fire, the manna from heaven. All of this meant to fuel your hearts and your minds so that you might love Jesus. And then in Moses' last address in the book of Deuteronomy, in in chapter 18, verse 15, If they had eyes to see, they would have seen it and they would have worshipped. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And Jesus connects this to himself. Moses bore witness of God the Son of Jesus Christ. 47. 
It's where we'll land the plane here. It says, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, obviously, we want to be the type of people who believe God's words. Jesus is telling the truth, and we are one of the other witnesses that testify to the truth that we have seen that has been born witness of these witnesses, John the Baptist, God himself, God the Father, and the Scriptures. Now, in the New Testament, the writers pick up on this to show us what our identity is in light of these truths. I'm trying to think if this is a good time for a band to come back up. I think it is. Come back up. Acts 1.8. Look. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So as a follower of Christ, in light of this reality, listen, part of what you are is a witness. It's not whether you are one or not, it's how faithful will you be. And then Paul gets at this in 2 Corinthians 4, showing us the gospel logic of believing these things and speaking them, or actually being a witness. Look at verse 11. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. Look, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. This concluding words, then we'll sing. We are witnesses of Jesus' death and resurrection. As we live that out, we do nothing on our own, choose his will, not ours. We burn and we shine. We have his word abiding in us, the love of God in us. We read the word to see Jesus. We reject the glory that comes from people. We set our hope on Jesus alone, and we pursue the glory that comes from God into eternal life. Jesus is telling the truth, and we get to go be witnesses to that. Let's stand and sing.